before um, before we get into this, uh, I'll just say that this is the, the darkest passage of Scripture I've ever had to study to teach, and, uh, and it has not been easy for me personally, and I think because of um, for a number of reasons, it's just a dark passage, but as a dad, what, what Lot does in compromising his daughters um, is, is impossible for me to wrap my mind around. And, I, I, you know, I think of, uh, I, I don't want it to be just overly heavy because it is by nature, the text, but it's also a text that's going to point us to just the beauty of mercy and grace and the Lord's goodness. Um, uh, I, I've grown to not enjoy watching movies or shows that are real dark. There's a real popular show right now that a bunch of people have watched. Everybody, I feel like everybody I talk to has watched this show. Probably, it's got to be the number one show right now, and it's one of those shows that has seasons and people binge watch it. But I've had several people say, it's just kind of dark. There's no good guys. And I'm like, That's, I'm out right then. I'm out. No good guys, I'm out. I need the white hat. Good guy rides in. And I don't care if, like, like I would rather be entertained with hokey, cheesy, corny, you know, we watch Knight Rider and Incredible Hulk at my house, you know. Um, there's something about make-believe that, 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 that is lighter than reality. And you hear that, that, uh, that old saying that truth is stranger than fiction. But, but as we get into this, I'm, I'm not going to walk through the text. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to take five, five observations or five sets of observations from the text. Um, and then a concluding encouraging thought or challenge and I want to start with a with a couple of caveats one the text is not first and foremost a text about homosexuality it's there we'll address it we'll address it very briefly the text uh in addition to that the text um says a lot to us about the wrath of God but also points us to the mercy and grace of God a lot of us maybe grew up with one or the other emphasized and it's important as Christians that we see both uh, the text also will serve to remind us that, that we live in a really broken and fallen world and that God has a plan that's bigger and greater than the fallenness of, of the world that we live in. And so as dark as it is, um, I think for me, I can choose not to listen to, uh, I, I, like to I like to listen to podcasts. I listen to true crime podcasts. Anybody? True crime podcasters? Okay, quite a few people. But it's, it's so funny. That's like such a thing right now. And, man, I love it. Me and Kilby, I remember we used to, when she was just little, we'd watch those cold case files, forensic files. You know, most of those things were filmed like 20 years ago, and, um, and, and we, would, we would watch those. I love watching those. Um, I, I've told my family, if I turn up dead, I want a full autopsy. Somebody came and got me. I don't care what it looks like. I've, I'm warped. I've listened to too many of those things, you know, like um, – but, but I, I was recently listening to a, a true crime podcast, and, I, and after a couple episodes, I quit listening to it. It was too dark. You find that as the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you lose stomach for certain things. Like, I just don't want to be entertained by that. Um, I know it's reality, and I know some, some of you work in law enforcement or in the medical field. And for those of us that work in pastoral ministry, we have to deal with a lot of things that you can't go home and just walk away from. You know, you take it home with you. You sleep in torment over it. And even last two nights, I've had a hard time getting to sleep thinking about this text. And I've had a disrupted 48 hours thinking about this text. So just 
But the thing that God showed me today about this is this is not like a podcast or a movie or a show. When the Word of God tells us something, if we will be faithful to press into it, He'll reveal more of Himself to us, and we'll grow through that, and that's a good thing. We don't have to be afraid of the hard passages in Scripture. As hard as they are, we, if we press into them, when we come out of them, the Lord will be faithful to reveal himself to us and grow us and encourage us. We can expect encouragement. Um, I don't want to be a church that comes and goes through a service and leaves and feels discouraged. I always want to feel encouraged. Sometimes that encouragement is, is, a, is a charge to do something that maybe is weighty. I've preached before where I was recent, recently preaching at a church and the guy he said, I hope you're going to give it to us, preacher. The last guy didn't step on our toes enough. And I was like, uh, you know, it's kind of a church culture thing. Like, I want somebody to come in here. And some churches don't feel like you're getting it done if you're not screaming and snorting and yelling and hollering, you know. And other churches, that would just, you'd just get looked at kind of weird if you did that. And the reality is the weight of Scripture is more than we can carry. So the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit that inspired and wrote and gave us the word is the spirit that interprets that for us. The most faithful biblical hermeneutic, which a hermeneutic is a means or a process of studying the scripture, is the interpretation of the Holy Spirit for us. And we have the spirit of God living in us. So when we come to a text like this, we can trust that God will give us something that will help us and that will grow us. Um, so I want to start first um, by looking at some observations concerning justice and the wrath of God. Now, we're going to have five points uh, of observation, but the first and fifth will be the same. We're going to start with some precursor look, look at the wrath and justice of God, and then we're going to end with that. So some observations concerning the justice and the wrath of God. Uh, let's begin with this, that the Lord always judges justly. We look at, at the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, what we find is that God is just in judging them. And God always judges justly. Uh, next, every nation that rejects morality, now listen, this is so true in history and so applicable to nations in the West right now. Every nation that rejects God's morality accelerates down a slippery slope of depravity and sin. Sodom, Babylon, Greece, Rome, Nazi Germany under the Third Reich, and I would even consider some smaller people groups like some of the native tribes and indigenous peoples that have fallen into cannibalism or the worship of pagan demonic uh, deities. But this is true for individuals as well. When we reject the morality of God or God's law, it's a slippery slope into depravity where that depravity or that sin becomes enslaving. When we reject the authority of the Word of God, the end is always disastrous and destructive. But also, this is encouraging, this, this, this part of um, this observation. The Lord is patient, and he's not willing that any should perish. You know the Scripture tells us that, that the Lord's not willing that any should perish. And he takes no pleasure in the judgment of the wicked. He's not willing that any should perish, and yet people perish. So what do we do with that? Well, we could say he's also not willing that any daddies would leave their babies. But it happens. We could also say that he's not willing that, that families disintegrate or that people fall under the weight and, and, and the enslavement of addiction. But it happens. So when God's not willing for something to happen, and yet it happens, what do we do with that? Well, we press into the sovereignty of God because it always has more power than the will of man. 
And so it's the sovereignty of God that will ultimately trump the will of man. In other words, our decisions will often bring consequences and destruction to the decisions of individuals, the decisions of societies. But ultimately, God has an overarching redemptive plan for history that does involve judgment and even destruction. Ezekiel 18.23, however, this is so encouraging to me. God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Do I have any pleasure in the death of the, of the wicked, de, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God doesn't take pleasure in the destruction of the wicked. I think that's important for us. Those of us that were raised with a heavy-handed view of God, listen to me, church. God doesn't take pleasure in destruction of the wicked. That's beautiful. That's wonderful news. He doesn't take pleasure in that. But Ezekiel 18, 24, one verse later says, but when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered. For the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed for them, he shall die. Consider the opportunities the Lord was willing to give Sodom that we saw last week in chapter 18. So we have to hold the wrath of God and the justice of God in, in a good and healthy tension in a good and healthy tension. And we'll come back to that. The second set of observations, there's four, really five, because we're doubling up on that first one. The second set is this. Consider the slippery slope of compromise, the slippery slope of compromise. If we look at Lot's progression up to this point in our study of Genesis, it's been a long and slippery slope. In Genesis 13.10, now watch this, this is so fascinating. It says in Genesis 13.10 that Lot looked towards Sodom. And in the Hebrew, the idea is that he looked with longing and affection. He gazed towards Sodom. It was just like this longing for this place that he wasn't presently at. You know, he wanted to go. There's this longing to go there. Um, Genesis 13, 12 says that he then settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So he gets right up to the edge. He's just outside of Sodom. He's in the valley, but he's close to Sodom. So there's a progression it's a, it's a progression, and we're going to see it's a progression of compromise. Genesis 14, 12, Lot had then moved into Sodom and become a resident of the city of Sodom. We saw this. Remember the message um, that Rob preached about uh, the 318 militia? And, and Abram, Abram has to take his men and go rescue Lot because he's captured with the people of Sodom. So he's now moved into Sodom and become a resident of the city. And when we get to our text tonight, two things that stand out in the first two verses. First is Lot is sitting in the gate of the city in, in 19 verse 1, which means he's come to a place of prominence in the city. He's a man, he's in a position of prominence. He's a person who, to sit in the gate, the gate of the city is where um, court rulings might be held. It's where major policy was set. It's where the overall decision decision making for the city was made it's also where major trade would be done so he's a, he's achieved status so he goes from out here looking at Sodom with longing to now he's not only been embraced in Sodom he's embraced Sodom and what we see at this point is he's not only in Sodom but Sodom is in his heart He's now embraced Sodom and become a citizen of Sodom, which means he's no longer a citizen, first and foremost, of an eternal kingdom that he's looking forward to. He's no longer a pilgrim and a sojourner like his uncle Abraham is. He's, he's dwelling in Sodom, which brings us to uh, verse 2 of, of our text tonight, which is this is the first time in Scripture that the word house is used. It's fascinating. First time in the Bible the word house is used. 
He's living in a house. He built a house. If you've ever built a house, that's a really big deal. If you've ever built a house, it's probably still not done. It's like a never-ending, ongoing, tension-creating. He built a house. It's a big commitment to build a house. I'm going to build a house. Nope. I'm going to buy one that's already been built. You know, like, but whether he bought it or he built it, he has moved permanently into, what is he saying? This is my home. These are my people. I am with the people of Sodom, and I am in Sodom, and Sodom is in me. He's full-fledged. Now, this, I think it's important here to recognize this is different than someone being on mission, like a missionary that goes and lives within a, a people group. This is different than that. And, we, and the difference is probably obvious, but uh, just so that we understand, a person who goes into another culture, people group on mission, goes with a plan and goals and support, and, they have, and their, their plan is to take the gospel to these people. But what we see is that Lot is now flourishing and thriving as a sodomite, not as a believer living among an indigenous people with the plan to bring the gospel to them. He had grown comfortable living in Sodom. He had gained status. He had a house. He was enjoying the city and all that it had to offer. He'd embraced the culture, and he was approving of the culture. It's like Little's grandmother used to get this magazine. Forget the name of the magazine. I think it was called, just called Country. And, it, and the, like the tagline was, for those who live in or long for the country. And I loved going to her house and, and looking at through those magazines because it would be like people that homestead or it would be like a lot of farmers and ranchers. A lot of it was like the Midwest or, or, the, or out West, people that ranched. And I've always romanticized the idea of living out like, like, like Longmire, you know, like being out there on a ranch and having cows and horses and being a cowboy. I'm a cow, I'm a, my spirit animal is a cowboy. And so uh, I love looking through that magazine, those who live in or long for the country. I can tell you this, I've never lived in a subdivision. I've never, I've never lived in a subdivision. And with one exception in my entire life, and that was little in our first year of marriage, I've never lived where you didn't leave the pave, pavement to get home. But, but the city is an enjoyable place to visit. But I want to go home after I visit it. But some people love the city and what it offers. We're just, we're wired differently. Some of that has to do with the way you're raised, and some of it maybe has to do with, um, with the things that you enjoy. But, but the city definitely affords a lot. People will come to Snowbird Outfitters, and they have not been in town one hour, and they'll drive to Walmart in Murphy. And I'll think, where you, I'll say, where are you from? Oh, Woodstock, Georgia. You got two Targets and two Walmarts. You come to Andrews and backtrack to Murphy to go to what? We just had to pick up a few things. It's something that's like, and people will say things like, I don't know if I could live out there where y'all live. What people will say things like, what's the closest Target? Ladies? <laughs> I knew it. Two hours, boom, like, just like that. And you're probably in every direction. Two hours, you could go, right? And you could get to one, you know? It's like, man, something about living in, and, and some of us don't want to live in the city, but let's get kind of close to the city. And then that's kind of, there's that, there's that best of both worlds, you know? And so I don't know, maybe initially Lot was just drawn to the city for what it offered. I don't know. We're not told exactly, but there's this constant gaze towards Sodom. There's a lot of foreshadowing. There's a lot of literary vices in the way that 
literary devices in the way that he, we see him gravitate and eventually he ends up in Sodom. But, but I think what we, what we come to in tonight's text is he's not only embraced Sodom for all of its amenities, he's embraced, embraced Sodom for all of her ideologies. He's embraced Sodom for all of her ideologies. He has allowed Sodom to define his worldview. He's allowed Sodom to define his value system. He's allowed Sodom to define sexuality and family. He's no longer looking to the authority of Yahweh. He's looking to the authority of the culture and the society around him. This is most obvious in the darkest moment of the script to me in the way that he treats his, sis, his daughters. The most obvious in how he treats his daughters. His value system has been totally shaped by the system of Sodom. And we go, why does he do that? Where does that come from? No man of God would do that. No, but the people of Sodom would do that. He's behaving like the people of Sodom. I was thinking about this today. I was thinking about the here and the now. John and Jenna and I were talking last night and the here and the now, we're, we're so appalled by what Lot has done, but we're living in a society that is giving away the innocence of our own sons and daughters to the tide of social and cultural comfort and acceptance. We're doing the same thing as a society right now. I believe it's different in our society because there's a remnant of faithful followers of Jesus who are saying we will not yield God's law to the law of pagan man. But we're seeing the same type of thing happen. Recently, there was a well-known play. I don't remember the name of the play. I just read about it. And in the play, the main character portrayed a man who was in an adulterous relationship and eventually left his wife to have an adulterous relationship with a goat. A goat, okay? So it's like, I'm reading, I'm reading this thing, and I'm going, okay, it's got to be like some sort of satirical silliness. Nope, it's exactly what it, what, it, what it is. It's a man leaving his wife to have a sexual relationship with a goat. Eventually, he leaves his wife and children. The play was actually celebrated in some circles, which is not surprising if you pay attention to where we are as a society. But it was also... There was an outcry and, a, and like a pushback against it in other circles. But one particular group has been really vocal about how, how this type of thing needs to be celebrated. And it's a group of people who celebrate human-animal relationships. Forget the name of the people. I didn't write it down. I didn't want to give it that kind of attention. But I was thinking about this. 50 years ago, 50 years ago, 1972, solid year, by the way. A lot of good models came out of that year. Wait, what model are you? I'm 72 model. Any other 72 models in here? Bird. Bird. Now, speaking of living in the city, living, some of us don't want to live in the city, but we want to live in small towns. And in this town, I loved yesterday, we were at, at, the, at the little kids' soccer and baseball games for a good part of the day. Don't you love, like, the whole community was out there. We got, like, a straight-up Red Oak little soccer team. There's, like, almost that whole team's Red Oak kids. And Jaybird's done a phenomenal job, like, mowing those fields. And, man, it was awesome. That was such a good day, like, such a community day. It was so fun. And I, I was actually thinking about it last night. Like, there's this draw that we have for community. But what's happening is if we went back 50 years 
and, 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 and said, hey, we're going to write a play or make a movie or write a book. And in the book, a man is going to leave his wife for another man. We would have had the same exact outcry that is being experienced over this modern play. So 50 years from now, where will we be in terms in the name of tolerance? It's a downward slippery slope of compromise. When we begin to yield God's standard and God's law to the laws of a society that is bent on rebelling against God. In fact, Paul in Romans says, in Romans chapter 1, he says, it's not just that they do these things, but they celebrate and approve of those who do them. So that we say, well, this is brave when you take these kind of stances. Only the word of God and the plan of God is timeless. It is for today and it is for the next day and for the future. No worldview and no social agenda is timeless. Anything that man institutes will run a course and end in destruction. The most loving thing we could do is, is labor lovingly to bring to a halt those things that God has promised to bring judgment against. Right now, people are only thinking of the moment. We look around right now our, as our society spins out of control, there's this obsession over certain things where you, you step back and you go, well, what's the end game? Like, where's this take us? Where, where do we progress to? It's important to understand here the cultural state, the emotional state, and the overall atmosphere in Sodom as a city was now being lived out through Lot's actions. What started as tolerance led to compromise, led to a full-scale embrace of a new system of morality that defied God's system of morality and celebrated what man had now put in its place. That's where Sodom's at, and that's where Lot is. Consider Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his light he and in his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water who brings forth its fruit in its season. Lot has gone the opposite direction of the upright man. He has sat in the seat. He has stood in the way, and he is now walking, which in the Scripture is the, another word for living. He lives and walks in the way of the mockers and the counsel of the wicked. This brings us to our third observation, and that is to consider the contrast between Abraham and Lot. Think of last week's message in which we saw Abraham plead with the people of Sodom, plead with God for the people of Sodom. You feel, did you feel that? Every time I read that text, I'm like, I, think, I, I wrestle, why is God being so gracious to Abraham when Abraham's like, I'm only going to say it one more time. Remember that? And he's like, well, I'll, this one more time I'll speak. And then he speaks, and God responds, and he's like, okay, this... I promise this is the last time I'm going to say it. If there's 50 people in Sodom that love the Lord, would you save? Yep, okay. All right. well, what if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if, what if there's five people in Sodom? What if, would you spare the city? You see this man burdened for the city. This, he's got a burden that these people would have peace with God. It's powerful, man. There's a contrast between him and Lot. Abraham loves Sodom for what he offers Sodom, which is a relationship with God. Lot loves Sodom for what Sodom offers Lot. Do we love the world with the love of Jesus? Do we love the world because we have the gospel, which is the hope of the world? Do we love the world because of what we offer the world? Or do we love the world because of what the world provides for us? That's the question 
that we have to wrestle with. There's also this contrast in that Abraham dwelled in a tent and he understood that this world is not his home. Lot built a house in this place called Sodom. We get some insight into this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses uh, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him for the same promise. Right here, verse 10 is what's key. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Red Oak, we are, we are looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is the Lord Jesus. That's what waits for all of us. When you feel the pressure of culture to yield and say, I'm not going to hold to this antiquated Old Testament belief system. I'm not going to hold to this old-fashioned Christian view. I'm not going to let 2,000-year-old morality define. I'm going to progress with culture. I want to be a, a man or a woman of, of culture. Remember this. Jesus is building a city. He is the architect, the builder, and the founder. And he says this, I go there to prepare a place for you. And if that wasn't so, I would have told you so. I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's your home. That's my home. We fix our eyes on a future home and a future city as Abraham did. But Lot was obsessed with the here and the now and the comforts of this city called Sodom. And number four, our semi-final observation. So we need to consider what was the sin of Sodom. Well, we know that certainly homosexuality is rampant there, and we know that um, the Scripture is very clear on this. We, we, one of the things that's so confusing right now is pro- progressive, so-called progressive Christianity is, is trying to recreate a new system of sexuality and then, and then sort of sprinkle biblical support on top of that. But we know that Scripture is very clear in this and that even today as I, was, as I was explaining reproduction of animals to a nine-year-old, that's a good time. <laughs> the last one, I'm done. I, I walked out of that conversation like, I made it, you know, like <laughs> explaining that and explaining God designed a natural progression for sex and sexuality. This is, why, this is why the scripture says when people abandon what is natural, what, what is natural is what God created. And then they went after that which was unnatural, not designed by God. So scripture speaks to that. It's clear. And it's not just in the, New, the Old Testament. It's also in the New Testament. But, but certainly that's part of what was going on in Sodom. But listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23, 14. We saw some of these verses last week. The prophets of Judah are accused there of behaving like the people of Sodom in that they commit adultery, they lie, and they celebrate evil doing. Ezekiel gives us more insight, as does Isaiah, the great prophet of Israel. Ezekiel says this, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Isn't that interesting? doesn't mention homosexuality. It says, man, they were comfortable. They were thriving and flourishing. There was a booming economy. Inflation was, was measured. Gas was only $1.60 a gallon. It's a good place to live, gang. Sodom, man, they had a target on every uh, world market. 
Man, it's awesome. They have movie theaters. They had taco stands. Like if you like, it's like a really modern city, you know. It's like there was, but on the backside of that, they were they were running the poor in the ground. There was a hierarchical structure that oppressed people. There was no love for justice. Adultery was rampant. Sexual lasciviousness was rampant. That's what the prophets would tell us. These passages reflect Paul's writing in Romans 1, which describes this downward spiral, what Jim Boyce calls a spectrum of iniquity. Boyce says this, sexual sins are only part of the larger pattern of corruption in the pagan world. Sodom was not destroyed because it specialized in homosexuality, but because it was a plague center of of every kind of depravity, including pride, sensuality, and injustice. The Old Testament reader would recognize homosexual practice as one aspect of this depravity. And this brings us back as our fifth observation. We come back to the first one, which is some final thoughts on wrath and judgment of God as they're applied to this city. I want us to consider four ways in which the wrath of God might be poured out or displayed. Four ways. The first is immediate and swift outpouring and destruction, as we see in Sodom. The next pouring out of God's wrath would be a slow progression, a slow progression that comes in the form of handing people over to their own demands and desires. The third one is immediate and swift outpouring in a final judgment and destruction. And then the fourth is for the wrath of God to be poured out on Christ at the cross. Just consider these as kind of our our landing point. At Sodom, what we see is the wrath of God poured out for a specific judgment on a people but the scripture tells us that in the end God is going to pour out that type of wrath on planet earth in a total and whole scale destruction and that he's going to cleanse the earth and he's going to bring about a new creation but there's also in Romans 1 described a slow progression where God says okay I'll tell you what I'm going to do I'm going to let you have your way and people begin to self-destruct by holding on to what they reject God for. That's a downward progression where God sort of takes his hands off and says, I'm going to let it run its course. But for us, here's the hope. Here's the good news. The fourth way that God's wrath is poured out is at the cross, where Jesus stands between man and God and receives the just condemnation and wrath of God for your sin and my sin so that we don't have to face any of the other three judgments. We can live redeemed, uncondemned. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The last verse of our text is really amazing because it reminds us of the grace of God that removes condemnation. It says this, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the over out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. It said God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out. Lot is spared because of the covenant promises of God made to Abraham. For us, safety and security, even in the midst of judgment, rest in the covenant promises of God given to us through the finished work of Jesus. I've wrestled for years with the fact that Lot is referred to as a righteous man wrestled with that and we'll look at those verses in second peter chapter two 
It says this, if turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. I've always wrestled with this idea that Peter calls Lot righteous. But if we drill into Peter's words, what he's saying is that, that Lot lived in torment. And the torment came from the fact that while he lived in Sodom and Sodom had taken root and lived in his own heart, he was a man who had been declared righteous by God. And some of us have been there where as a believer, you live with one foot in the world and you're tormented. It doesn't provide you peace. It doesn't provide you security. The drugs and addiction don't satisfy you more than today and tomorrow maybe. The pornography only gives momentary satisfaction. Or on a larger scale, to bend my way of thinking to a secular worldview so that I can fit into the institution or the marketplace or academia or the classroom. Sure, I might get accepted for a season or even a career, but in the end, it's going to only bring me torment if I profess faith in Jesus, especially if I'm a child of God. Compromise always leads to torment for the believer, but it never leads to peace. Compromise always leads to torment for the believer, but it never leads to peace. Even in the thriving industry of Sodom, Lot was a man in torment. We see it in the interaction. We see that no people didn't even take him serious. Think about this. In the middle of the story, he's like to his sons-in-law, hey, we got to go. They're going to destroy the city. And they're like, that guy's always messing around. Like nobody even took his faith serious. He was so compromised. The, the angels told him, you got to go. He's like, okay, all right, okay. Hey, guys, we got to go. Okay. And then the next morning, he's asleep, fell asleep on the couch. Angels come in there like, hey, we're serious. You got to go. They physically grab him and drag him and his family out of the city. He's so tormented. He recognizes these are men of God. Then they're proclaiming judgment of God. And I got to go. But uh, sleep one more night in my bed. One more moment in this place. Compromise leads to torment. It never leads to peace. We'll close with the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty four. 24. He said, but I tell you, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. He's speaking to people who have seen his works have heard him proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. He has preached the gospel, and they've rejected it. As bad as it was for Sodom, those in our day who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and reject it will have it worse. Will have it, have it worse. And so, so, so the final thought is a warning and a call for the unbeliever and a promise for the believer. For the unbeliever, the call is to repent today. Repent and receive mercy and grace and forgiveness and come out from under the judgment of God that is coming and receive the salvation that Jesus gives. And for the believer, in the darkest moments in history and in the darkest pages of Scripture, Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He's still building a kingdom. He's still true to his promises. And he still declares people righteous because he has the authority to do so and the compassion to do so. Let's thank him for his mercy. God, I pray tonight that you would help us to understand that in the midst of an incredibly corrupt generation, 
You've called us to be salt and light. You've called us to be a remnant. You've called us to stand for truth and justice, to fight for the marginalized, to rescue the perishing, to worship you in word and thought and deed and, and everything that we do to reflect the goodness of the Lord. Lord, I pray that we would learn from the city of Sodom and their destruction, and we would learn from Lot and his compromise, and we would learn from Abraham and his faithfulness, and we would learn from you and your mercy and your kindness to give to us what we don't deserve and what we could never earn. Lord, I pray tonight if there are those, all of us in some way, every one of us would admit that there's compromise in our lives. Help us to see your promises as greater than what this world offers, even the comfort of society that is fleeting and will not last. As Lot learned, there was a breaking point where he was no longer accepted by the city, even in the text tonight, where they turned on him. God, we can never live with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. So help us to sell out for you and to you and to live with condemnation removed as men and women on mission in a broken and dying generation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.